Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Werther Robot Dolphin Marciales. Werther is a jiu-jitsu brown belt under Sonny Parlin. Werther is also the owner of Fellowship Jiu-Jitsu in Sarasota, Florida. I stumbled upon Werther's videos on YouTube and was very impressed with his content delivery and his intelligence far beyond his years. In this episode, we talk meritocracy, wrestling, technique, lessons learned from being a new coach, and much more. Okay, just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show. And consider being a patron at anchor.fm forward slash Forever White Belt. Like our Facebook page at Forever White Belt. Follow us on TikTok at Forever White Belt. Check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your favorite Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And if you're ever in beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato, California. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are really great people. Also, make sure to mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Werther Marcialis. Werther, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. I discovered you and your great content, your videos, actually, and I was blown away by the quality of the way you communicate and message and, and everything. Really, you have what, you know, what I like to call to some guests, the it factor, it seems like. And I'm like, why do more people not know about this guy? You really got to check it out. First of all, can you tell us who you are? Sure, absolutely. And, you know, thank you for bringing me on the podcast. Love to expand, you know, what I talk about to a larger audience. So basically, I'm a brown belt in Sarasota, Florida. My instructor is Sonny Parlin. He was the owner of Gracie Bradenton. His instructor is Rob Kahn. And then Rob Kahn was one of Hoist Gracie's first five black belts. So although it's a little different than most of the Hoist network because we do mostly no gi. I came up wrestling for four years in high school before I started jujitsu. So I was kind of already brainwashed into the no gi. It was what I was comfortable with. It's also Florida. It's a hot climate. So I fell in love with no gi and that became what I've been training and what I've been teaching. I've been training for seven and a half years. I've been teaching for a little over four years. I have a school in Sarasota, Florida. It's Fellowship Jiu-Jitsu Sarasota. And we've been open two years now, actually. We just had our two-year anniversary last month in February. Square footage, uh, the total building is 2,000 square feet. Of that, I have about 1,600 square feet that is mat space. So I really, uh, yeah, so I really focused on maximizing the amount of mats that I have in here. When I opened up, I had about 750 square feet in the in the front section, and uh, I actually just expanded into the back. I added another 850 or so, so now we're about 1600. So obviously, I'm very happy about that. You know, it's good to expand, Congrats. and uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm super happy that now I have more students. You know, because I really love what I do, and the more people that I can reach, the better. And what I realized a few months ago when I was preparing to start my video content was if I only stick to the 120 or so students that I have in my school, then the reach for my ideas is quite limited. Uh, Obviously, we're on a podcast, so you understand this. So I was like, well, let me just put out some content and uh, maybe I can try to reach a larger audience, you know? And so we've been doing that for the past just over two months. Um, I release three videos a week and we're actually start going to start releasing technique videos too. So it's going to jump up to five. So I'm going to do two technique videos a week and uh, three videos just like I've been doing. So you've seen my content. So, you know, 
I basically talk about important conceptual strategic elements of jujitsu, both for beginners and competitors and people that have been training a long time. I talk about cultural issues in, ju in jujitsu that obviously I have my own takes on because I want to put my ideas out there into the marketplace. And, uh, you know, hopefully if they're good, they will stick around and be adopted by more people. And if they're bad, then I will receive feedback and then I will adjust what I believe to be how things should be done. How'd you even start jujitsu? Well, like I said, I started wrestling. I wrestled for four years in high school, you know, and then after I stopped wrestling for two years, I kind of didn't have a sport. You know, I didn't have something to dedicate myself to in the same way that I did wrestling, you know, which was kind of a bummer for me. I had kind of an outlet in a way with the gym, with lifting. So, you know, I got big into lifting for two years. I tried to really increase my strength and aesthetic because to be honest, that's one part, one component of why people lift. But it wasn't as, um, I wasn't as enthusiastic about it. I just did it as a means of pursuing like an athletic goal. Like I'm trying to increase my lifts. I'm still trying to progress in some way, but I eventually came across this ad for uh, train fight win, which is a martial arts MMA gym in Tallahassee, which is where I was going to school. And, you know, they had a free trial class and I was like, okay, I'm going to go check, check this out. You know, maybe, maybe this will be something I can de devote myself to. So, um, I love the first class. I went in there and it's like, oh my God, this is like wrestling, but we get to choke each other out. I thought it was the greatest thing ever because I didn't know much about jujitsu at the time. You know, I didn't know like what it entailed, but it's like, you know, I learned a submission. I got choked out a bunch. Oh my gosh. Because, you know, I was still a pure 100% wrestler. So I would shoot my low shots. You know, I would shoot my double legs and my head on the outside. Just without oh, you were that world. guy. What a oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I would, I would get guillotined. I'd get triangled. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this was at a time where women training jujitsu also wasn't as prominent as it is now. This was back mm -hmm. in like 2015. No, even further than that, this was in 2014. So, um, you know, the first week I was there, uh, the school owner's wife, uh, whose name is Alyssa, she armbarred me and it was like super legit in the guard. And that was like a wake up call. I was like, Oh my God. The technical components to this are so legit because, you know, I'm far stronger than her, but I was unable to do anything to counter what she was doing. So mm. that was really, really cool for me. And, uh, yeah, I've been in love with it ever since, since then, uh, my, my first five and a half, six years of jujitsu, you know, was just like training five, six days a week, twice a day, as, uh, you mm. know, if I could, mm -hmm. when I wasn't, when I wasn't working. So I was big into that. I pursued a competitive path, you know, since the beginning, like that was always what I wanted to do. Got my butt kicked a bunch. And uh, I may have made a video talking about this, but I'm, I'm not sure if I have. So when I wrestled, and I tell people this all the time, I was committed to not sucking so much that I was willing to go through a ton of pain and defeat to get there. Because, you know, in jujitsu, we have skill divisions when we compete, you know, in wrestling, we do not. So you might be going up against a completely new person like you, or you might be going up against a state champ. It doesn't matter, right? There's no differentiation. There's no medals. You know, it's just like whoever wins, wins. And that's always been the mentality that I've approached jujitsu, right? From a purely meritocratic stance, you know, it's like belts don't really matter. It's just who you can beat and where you are in terms of your skill. So I brought that mentality sort of into my jujitsu and I've competed a lot, lost a ton, but with every loss, I got better. And eventually I had some, you know, I had some bigger wins. I got to be on bigger invitationals and stuff. And now I'm sort of just focused on running the school. So that's been me the past two years. When you were competing, was it both gi and no gi? So until I was a purple belt, I competed in both gi and no gi, which I highly encourage to anyone who's listening, by the way, I highly encourage you compete in both until you're a purple belt. 
And then once you're a purple belt, if you want to go a specific direction, if you want to go 100% gi or you want to go 100% no gi, at that point, I would do that. Mm. And I talk about the difference of gi versus no gi training. And, you know, obviously I'm very biased towards no gi, but I think it's very useful for people to train both because, and I'm not, you know, this isn't my idea. I'm kind of taking this from John Donaher. I thought his explanation of both was very good. In no gi, there's a sweat factor. You know, there's not nearly as much friction as the gi. There's an inability to hold grips. So no gi is a lot more fluid. And if you want to be uh, successful offensively, your pressure game needs to be very tight. You need to leave very little space. But you can rely on a lot more athleticism and explosive movements when you're escaping. Okay, so no gi is very good in the beginning for cementing your offensive game because you need to be particularly tight with everything in order to get a submission. Gi is the opposite. So gi has a ton of friction, right? It has grips that people can grab. So the grip fighting game is a lot less fluid. And if you want to escape something, like you need to be very technical in the way you pursue your escapes. You can't just muscle everything because the added friction of grips makes it difficult to do so. Offensively, though, you can help yourself with the grip fighting game and with the added friction of the gi, the elimination of the sweat factor in terms of your offensive game. So until you're a purple belt, I highly recommend people do both. You know, uh, we're mostly a no-gi school, but I do have a gi class and I encourage my students to do it because I do think it is beneficial. Plus learning the judo throws is like super cool. You know, that's something that I started to do in the last year is learn a little bit more judo. And that's been uh, really cool. So you mentioned uh, lifting earlier what does your yep. training look like outside of jujitsu? Sure. So I go through stages of different kinds of training. So right now I'm focusing more on lifting than jujitsu. And I can get away with this a lot because I'm constantly engaged by teaching jujitsu. So mentally, I'm always watching my students and uh, figuring out ways that I can improve their game and making corrections to their technique. And that helps me stay mentally engaged in jujitsu. But right now at the moment, I only really train twice a week. And at least one of them is a really hard session where I roll for about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And the other one, uh, it can also be harder. It can be a more technical session. So Hmm. I'm getting my cardio through that one session, but it's very difficult, you know, unless you're on gear or whatever, or whatever, it's very difficult to, you know, both do a heavy strength routine or a hypertrophy routine and also train jujitsu full-time five, six days a week. So if you want to put on mass, if you want to put on size and muscle and strength, then you kind of need to focus on that for the duration of your program. So, um, you know, I've done a couple strength gaining programs recently. Now I'm on hypertrophy and uh, with my hypertrophy session, I've started to train a little bit more jujitsu. Now, now I'm training jujitsu like three days, a week, three days a week, sometimes four days a week, because I find that it's easier to do with the hypertrophy. I'm just eating a ton. You know, that's the other Mm -hmm. thing you got to do. You got to really, really eat a lot. So it's difficult to balance both. But I would say for people that are looking to get bigger, like take your training in stages. So do like a technical phase of several months where you're trying to train as often as possible. So if you're the type of person that can do five, six days a week, if you're a competitor, then do that, right? Train as often as you can. And then take three to four months to do a real strengthening program, put some muscle on, strengthen yourself up, but you're going to have to cut your jujitsu down and you're really going to have to make sure that you're eating as much as possible. You would recommend that for like injury prevention too, because it seems like a lot of people go one way or another, right? They're either over over training and uh, under whatever strength training, movement training, whatever you want to call it, or vice versa. Do you see that sort of dilemma? I do. So one thing I tell people, like if you're going to lift and train jujitsu on the same day, make sure you lift first and then you train jujitsu afterwards. 
Okay. Especially if you're going heavy, okay. And you're doing, you know, big compound movements because if your body is tired out, right. If you're really tired and you soar from jujitsu training and you go to do a big lift, the chance of injury is much higher. You're also not going to be able to lift as much as you could, would you be fresh? And you know, that may affect your strength gains as well. So, you know, if you're going to do both, do the heavy lifting first. And then if you want to train jujitsu, train jujitsu after, although I wouldn't do a hard jujitsu session, I would do more of a technical session if you're going to do it that way. You mentioned injury prevention. Yeah, I think lifting is great for that. There's people that are far more qualified to talk about it than I am. You know, I, I listen to Dr. Mike Israel, for instance, you know, a, a lot. And uh, he also trains jujitsu as it happened. I didn't know that when I first started listening to him, but in one of his videos, he mentioned he's like a brown belt. For those of you guys who are interested in lifting and delving into the, the complexities of strength training programs and hypertrophy programs and things like that, check out Renaissance Periodization. It's where I get a lot of my info. So um, yeah, I think it's great for injury prevention. There's people that can better articulate it than I can, but think about it. You're making your muscles stronger. You're making your ligaments and tendons stronger. You're making uh, the ability for you to not get tired during rolls. You're increasing that if you're doing hypertrophy because you're increasing your muscles ability to uh, intake more glycogen. So all of that, all of that is great. And I, I highly encourage it to people and especially smaller guys, you know, I have a video talking about this, but it's always going to be difficult for, for, you know, people that are smaller when they're doing jujitsu. And as a result, you know, they really need to get a highly technical diversified game, but it's going to be a lot easier for you if you put on 10, 15 pounds of muscle. And obviously that's going to take a long time. That doesn't happen overnight. You know, like we're talking like 10, 12, 14 months, you know, of consistent, of consistent lifting to really put on 10, 15 solid pounds of muscle. Mm. But if you're 135, and you put 15 pounds on over the next year or so at 150, you're going to be able to do a lot more to a much larger array of people than if you're at 135. So do what you can in order to just make your jujitsu in absolute terms better, because we have weight classes and weight classes are great. They're obviously very useful for trying to isolate some of the more athletic components from who's better. So we can see like, all right, of the guys who are 155, like who has the best technique, right? That's what a weight class is meant to do. But in absolute terms, if you can gain solid weight, not bad weight, if you gain solid weight, if you're getting solid 20 pounds, you're going to be able to submit people that you would not have been able to submit were you 20 pounds lighter. And uh, I've found that to be the case with the way that I train. You know, when I was 165, I could not do nearly as much to some people as now when I'm closer to 190. Mm -hmm. So I definitely found that beneficial to my game. And obviously, you know, jujitsu is known as kind of the smaller person's martial art. But regardless of that, yes, if you have a sufficient technical disparity between yourself and a much bigger person, you're going to win. And technical disparity is the number one indicator of who's going to win an exchange. But you want to be able to beat big people that are also good at jujitsu, right? And uh, putting size and strength on and increasing your other athletic attributes like your flexibility and your endurance and, you know, your ability to engage in explosive output. That's all going to help you do that. So mm -hmm. you want to improve in all aspects. Obviously, the technical is the most important, but you want to add everything else too, ideally. How do you sort of prepare your students for competition and competition training? How do you strategize and do you guys uh, do any sort of retrospectives? Yeah. So right now I got mostly white and some blue belts. So they're very new. And what I tell them is, look, right now your competitions are just preparing you for the bigger moments eventually when you're sufficiently skilled enough to be in the invitationals and, you know, potentially compete for money or for, you know, a prestigious event if, if they don't have money. 
So it's all practice is what I tell them. I would much rather instead of, you know, constantly gearing and focusing my students on preparing for competition at the lower level, I would just rather have them in class and adding new technical skills to their game, right? That's what I want them to do ideally. I want them to constantly be adding new technical skills to the game. So we do a lot of positional drilling. I don't have like a specific competition team practice yet. When I get a few more purple belts, that is something I do plan on doing because once you're a purple belt, you should have no holes defensively, like no really obvious holes to exploit defensively. You should have at least a couple really strong offensive sequences where you can submit people that are higher rank than you. So you're at the point where now you need a little bit more specialized hard training to continue to improve and to really prepare yourself for competing against other purple belts, brown belts, black belts that have been in the game a lot longer than you. So the competitive practices for them are really useful for strategizing for that high level of competition. But for white and blue belts, you know, at that point, I don't believe it's more beneficial than just doing the positional drilling, adding new skills to your game and plugging the holes that already exist. Um, Although I do, after they compete, go over their matches with them and pick out corrections for them to do, you know, That's fantastic. Um, but specifically training my white and blue belts for competition. This is not something I do right now. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll change my mind in the future, but I think that's better for the higher ranks, you know. What about for yourself when you were competing, your process? Yeah. So for myself, I'm biased towards trying to roll with people that are better than me or of equal skill than me. That's not necessarily the best thing you can do for the development of your game. So one of the things I talk about is, again, not something that I came up with. This is something that Rob Kahn, my instructor's instructor, came up with. You know, the 70-30 rule. John Donnerher has his own take on that. You know, he calls it the 80-20 rule or even the 90-10 rule how most of your roles, the vast majority of your roles should be against people that are less technically skilled than you and that you can consistently submit. The reason for that is if all my students did was roll with me, right? They would get really good defensively, but they wouldn't be able to submit anybody because they've never been able to implement their submission game in a a live role. There's just too much of a skill difference, right? So they need to roll with other white belts or people that are newer than them to be able to develop those offensive sequences. So I try to follow that as closely as I can for my own training. Uh, And now that I have a school, it's easy. It's easy to have training partners that are less skilled than me that I can practice things on that I'm trying to implement into my game. As for my actual competitive training, that other 30%, I go elsewhere. You know, I go, I go and train at my instructor school. I go and train in Tampa. I go and I go and train at uh, North River Jiu-Jitsu, which is Josh Duke's school where now Keith Kikorian and John Combs are training, are training there. John wow. Combs actually just moved, moved down. So I haven't rolled with them yet on a consistent basis, but that's definitely something I want to do because he is a savage. And yeah. I would say he does a lot of the things I like to do from the front headlock game, but it's at a higher, it's at a higher level. And he has the tightest guillotine I've ever felt. And I love guillotines. I think I'm pretty good at escaping them, but John has the tightest guillotine that I've ever felt. So what are you enjoying right now in terms of BJJ? You mentioned front guillotines. I think my best positions are back control, front headlock, and north-south. Uh, I think that's where I usually dominate my roles. I would say north-south has really gone from a position I kind of just used to hold people to one I can consistently submit from, especially with the added weight gain that I've had. Mm -hmm. Frankly, just being heavier just makes it a lot easier to pin and control from that position. And those positions all cycle through with each other. The most common defense and the most annoying defense that people will do from bottom north south is they'll just spin to their belly. And it's actually the only position where you can do that without necessarily getting your back taken because the person is behind you. 
right? Mm -hmm. If you do that in side control, you do that in mount, you're going to get your back taken. In north-south, you're just transitioning to a different position, and then you have to defend the bottom front headlock. So if you're a good north-south player, you need to be a good front headlock player. And if you're a good front headlock player, well, you need to be a good back player because that's half the game, right? Half the game from front headlock is looking for chokes. And the other half is having a good solid back take system from there. So those are the positions I like to focus on. And I'm biased towards top position. You know, I I wrestled, obviously, and I have a self-defense philosophy as well. It's always better to be on top. So I'm biased towards the top position. That being said, I don't neglect my guard. I play guard often, but I have an inability to control the pace from the guard. What do you wish you were better at? I guess I would say my guard. I wish I was better at guard. You know, it's it's a position that I prefer not to play over top position. I prefer to play top position. But the problem with it is uh, unless you have the energy tank of of the two, if you have a greater energy tank than your opponent and you can control the pace from guard. But if you decide to be the slower person, you can't do that from guard, right? You're basically at the mercy of the pace of the passer and how hard they want to go. Um, I like being able to control the pace, you know, especially now that I'm not training as often. And uh, my my cardio is not as good as when I was competing constantly. So that's another reason I tell my students is like, look, you got to be good at wrestling. You got to be at least decently competent, because if you're not, you're at the mercy of your opponent's pace. If you're not, if you're not the better wrestler then you're at the mercy of your opponent's pace. And strategically, that's very valuable for the other person to have. That seems to be the common theme that I'm hearing this year over and over and over again is uh, wrestling, 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 wrestling. Yeah, I obviously share that sentiment. And, you know, I I have my biases, of course. So I'll I'll point it out in terms of fighting, why it's so important. To me, when I look at Khabib Nurmagomedov, for instance, right, when he fought, everyone's like, oh, he's got the best wrestling. He's got the best. He's got the best ability to take people down. I would actually say his best ability is not the ability to take people down. It's the ability to pin and control after the takedown. He is just a backpack and he does not let anyone get up. That is what I believe his true world-class skill was, is that he's going to fail some of the takedowns, right? He didn't get every takedown that he attempted, but when he did get the takedown, it was almost impossible to get him off. And he had this crushing pressure that he would eventually just grind people down with and and beat them up. And look I think at, that's... Look at Damian Maya. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Damian Maya, not the greatest takedown artist that went into martial arts, but once he got you down, you were in big trouble. He did not let people up. And that was his best skill. Khabib was just a better takedown artist than Damian Maia, much more diverse in his attacks. And uh, so he had a greater ability to take people to the ground and then implement that crushing wrestling pressure. Or, you know, he would call it Sambo pressure, but it's all the same thing. And I have a lot of respect for Sambo because of how they emphasize the takedown game and how important it is to their martial art. And I think that's something that jiu-jitsu needs to take on a little bit more. You know, I think every single jiu-jitsu school should produce blue belts that have basic competence in wrestling and the ability to take people down. What makes a great JJ student? I would say the ability to be structured in the way that they train, be consistent in the way that they train, and the ability to intake new information and integrate it into their existing game. If you can do both of those things, then you will become very good. You don't want to become the person that's like always showing up to class, you know, always religiously training as hard as they can but you have a set view, a set style in your jujitsu, and you're not willing to expand into new areas of knowledge and integrate those areas of knowledge into your game. You can train as hard as you want, as often as you want, right? If you're not learning anything new, if you're not learning new skills, then you're not going to improve that much. So you want to have the ability to intake new information and constantly be updating what you're doing because 
the metagame in jujitsu is changing constantly. You go back five years and some of the things that people were doing have changed tremendously for the better. We're doing a lot a lot more intricate setups to things where we have uh, more intricate passing systems. We have more intricate leg lock systems. We have a greater ability to attack from top position. And when I say we, I'm speaking of like the jujitsu collective of people that actively train and compete in jujitsu. You know, it's just much higher level. And guess what? Five years from now, it's going to be the same thing. We're constantly getting more people to train jujitsu. And they're just going to continue expanding the knowledge base. And if you are set in your ways, basically, and you don't intake new information, then you're going to be stuck five years in the past. And the people that are keeping up with the metagame, they're going to destroy you when you go into competition. So that's my ideal student, someone who's structured and religious about their training and committing to a schedule that they can maintain, a consistent schedule that they can maintain, while also being very open-minded and learning new information. And when I say open-minded, it's not just learning information from me, their instructor. It's about taking in information from other people too. I encourage my students to cross-train. I encourage them to take private lessons from other high-level instructors. I encourage them to go to seminars. I encourage them to look at technique videos, to buy DVDs. These are all things you can do to increase your knowledge base. And guess what? It helps me too. I learned things from my students as well, you know, even though they're white and blue belts. And I'll give you an example. I'm a big fan of the Socratic method of teaching, which is basically a dialogue between you and your students. So I'm opening the dialogue. I'm showing them the techniques that we're doing that day. I'm explaining the strategic and conceptual things that I want people to understand that day. But I always open it up for questions. If people have a question about, well, what if your opponent does this? I'm not going to be like, well, that's not the lesson. You you know, don't interrupt me or whatever. No, I'm going to be like, All right, well, let's find out. Probably I'm going to have an answer to it. And guess what? Just by them asking that question and me giving that answer, it improved the learning for everybody else. Because now I was able to articulate something that maybe I wouldn't have articulated it without that question. And sometimes they may have something that gives me pause. You know, this doesn't happen often. But when I'm teaching a technique and they say, well, what if they do this to block it, right? Well, sometimes that actually works. And now I have to think like, okay, how would I counter that? And so that increases the knowledge for everybody else, not just me. To your first point, can you give me an example or just clarify for myself what you mean by structure in terms of your student? So the way I structure my curriculum, for instance, I do my lesson one. This is my beginner curriculum. You know, I'm starting an advanced curriculum very soon. But for my beginner curriculum, my structure is like this. Monday and Tuesday, I teach lesson one. Wednesday and Thursday, I teach lesson two. Fridays, I have question and answer class. So someone who's structured is someone who's always going to get every single important lesson of the week. Some people are not going to be competitors and that's totally fine. And they might be hobbyists. But I tell those people, I was like, look, you can give me two classes a week. At least you can commit to two classes a week. I don't care if you do more than that, if that's all you do, but get every single lesson in the curriculum so you can consistently improve. So someone who comes twice a week and they train like a consistent schedule. So maybe they do Monday, Wednesday. So they get both lessons. They're going to progress further than someone that is sporadic. You know, they have a couple of weeks where they train five days a week and then I don't see them for two weeks. In total class time, the second person is getting more classes, but this training schedule of the first person is more structured and it has more consistency. And they're going along with the structure that I've provided in the curriculum. I don't know if instructors really articulate how often they articulate, like what's in their curriculum and what you can be expecting to learn. But as a student, I would ask them and be like, look, what are the really important days that I need to be there and be there? 
So really commit to learning as much as you can and committing to the schedule that you've set for yourself. Committing to that set schedule is more important than the raw number of days that you train. So really thinking about your training schedule and your training strategy. I would say that is what structure is. You know, an unstructured person just kind of comes in, they don't have a plan, they roll randomly and they go home. They don't try to isolate specific positions or isolate specific skill sets, you know. So a person like that And by the way, there is some use to that. I think it does increase creativity, but you need to have that along with a structured training schedule. You need both. So that's what I would say a student that adheres to a structured training schedule, that's what they would do. Do you want to see them executing what you taught that week? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's why, especially for beginners, I only teach two lessons a week. If I were to teach 10 techniques a week and I just did it randomly each day and then I didn't do positional drilling, well, a white belt, for instance, like let's say I taught some stuff from the back. Let's say I taught some back attacks and I don't structure their training schedule around that, right? And I just, I'm like, all right, open that guys, you know, go ahead and roll. Well, a white belt that's learning those offensive sequences, how often are they actually going to be able to practice that in a live role? They may get to the back once in a five minute round, maybe. So that's not a lot of time to really practice those skills. So if I'm teaching something, I need to isolate it. The four steps of jujitsu from John Donaher, the takedown, the guard pass, the pin, the submission, okay? If you're starting from neutral, you need to go through the first three steps before you even can attempt a submission. And you would have to go into the specific position that we were working that week. That's very difficult for a new person to do. So instead, I eliminate step one and two. And now if we're on the back, I have you start in the back. The other person is trying to get out. You've already got the pin. You're just trying to retain the position. You're trying to retain the pin and submit from there. And now you actually have five minutes to work those skills. And that's really how you're going to get better in those positions. And what you want to do basically is you want to give your beginners the confidence in these dominant positions to where if they get to them, they know they can submit from them because it's going to produce a more offensive mindset once they start integrating the takedowns and the guard pass and everything else that's part of their jujitsu into that. So yeah, positional drilling is super, super important. And my beginner's curriculum in particular goes position by position. So back control, for instance, we work three weeks of back control. We do both Mm -hmm. offensive and defensive things from there. And then it goes into like the front headlock and the turtle, you know? So now when I work dominant positions, I basically break it down into three components. You have your entry into the position, you have your retention, your ability to maintain control of the position, and then you have your submission skill. And your submission skill can be broken down into grip fighting and breaking mechanics. So those are the four things really that you need in order to be successful in dominant position. So I isolate the retention and the submission skill sets when I'm doing positional drilling. And I have people confident that, all right, if I get to the back, I know how to hold on to it. And I have some offensive things that I can submit from there. Now, when they go into an unstructured role, they're going to go hard for the back because they know that if they get there, they can submit from there versus someone that's learning the neutral skill sets first and they get to a dominant position. They're like, I don't know what to do. So that's important too. But when you're working the dominant positions, you know, you don't want to have to have them be already be good at unrelated skill sets like takedowns and guard passing in order to implement their offensive sequences from whatever dominant position you're working on. And that goes for defense as well. Your thoughts on what makes a great teacher? Hmm. And how are you ramping up your skill in that department as well? Well, I would say just like with training, 
you know, with your regular jujitsu training, practice makes perfect. And uh, it's definitely a much harder. I think it's a much harder skill set than you know just being good a good competitor because you really have to sit back and be able to articulate what you're doing. We use two different processes when we're doing jujitsu and thinking about jujitsu. We use our muscle memory, which is basically like when we drill techniques mechanically and then we work to implement them in live rolling. That's where we're building. We're building automated responses to stimuli, right? And we're not thinking about it. I never think when I'm doing jujitsu, I'm just going through pre-planned reactions that I instinctively know I need to do. If I do have any thoughts when I'm rolling and training, it's more like strategy. Like, okay, like, should I switch gears here? Should I switch what I'm kind of trying to do in a general sense? But I'm not thinking like, okay, now I've got to isolate the Kimura. I got to grab the wrist. I got to, you just don't have those thoughts when you're rolling. So being able to just program your body to have the right reactions is a different skill set than being able to articulate the kind of programming that you're doing and be able to have other people program themselves in the same way, if that makes sense. So a great teacher really sits to the side and they try to articulate what they're trying for their students to learn. And just like being a good student, being a good teacher is about learning. You know, you really need to be honest with yourself about your mistakes. And I've been teaching four years. I've made several mistakes when I've been teaching both kids and adults. And uh, it's one of those things where you have to realize like, all right, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to try my best not to mess up. But when I do mess up, I really need to self-reflect and think about what I need to do better. And I would say that's a very low level reflection when you're doing jujitsu. But this happens in other fields at a much higher level. For instance, when surgeons are learning new surgeries, they're less experienced than the experienced surgeons. And so therefore, the chance that they'll make a mistake and kill the person they're operating on is much higher. But the system requires that that risk happen because if you just defer to the most experienced person with every single surgery, then that skill set dies with them because you never gave anyone else the ability to practice. So on a moral level, this happens with much higher stakes than just learning jujitsu. And uh, there's people that when they learn these surgeries, when they're first learning things, they kill people on accident. It's something that has to happen, though, in order for them to master their craft and be able to save as many people as possible throughout the extent of their career, because you want to think about these things long term. So going back to jujitsu on a low level, it's much easier to be honest with yourself because the stakes are lower. Although with kids, I think if while teaching you make a mistake in the way that you articulate something or you don't make it fun for them, you don't make them want to continue. That is someone that, well, they're going to quit because you made a mistake. And that sucks. And I do believe that's happened several times while I've been teaching and I was first learning how to teach. But it's something that you have to accept. You know, you're going to make mistakes and that later on when you're more experienced, you wouldn't have made. And maybe you would have been able to retain that person. Maybe you would have been able to help them out in a way that you couldn't before. But that's a part of the process. I'm not going to be around forever. So when I'm planning on growing this program, I'm going to hire other instructors to help teach. And of course, they're not going to be able to do it as well as me. And, you know, they're going to make mistakes. And maybe some people will leave the school as a result of those mistakes. But that's a necessity. It has to happen. And I, as a teacher, have to be willing for that to happen so I can groom the next generation of instructors to be as good as possible. So when you teach, you have to realize you're going to mess up. Just like everything else, you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. You're also going to teach things that later on, you're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe I taught that garbage. Just be willing to change. Be willing to improve and intake new information just like you would as a student.
On that point, I don't typically do this, but I want to get your feedback on something that I want to read to you, which I found to be a very fascinating topic and, and something of which I'm curious if for your viewpoint, the title was, at what point do you promote extremely slow learners? So mm-hmm. the gentleman says, I'm coming up on two years training right now. And we have this four stripe blue belt, mid thirties at our gym, who trains a solid four sessions a week, really trains hard, is in shape, but honestly just isn't all that good. Lovely guy, but he's just an extremely slow learner. He still attends beginner classes, struggles with a lot of the stuff shown there, struggles with basic sweeps, etc. He's been training a total of like six years or so. When I started, he was a two stripe blue belt. And after a year, he was given a stripe and recently another. It got me thinking, there's no way this guy's going to approach purple or get or is close to purple. I see the other purples at our gym and they literally package me up and send me home pretzeled. This guy struggles against the white belts. But at what point do you have this guy training at our gym for eight plus years, never really learning or picking things up, but grinding so hard and you never promote him? Obviously, it's discouraging to just never promote somebody either. Your viewpoint on that? And then someone also said, maybe this guy has a learning disability. I don't know. We don't know the the degree of this, right? So your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult question, but I side along the stance of maintaining the meritocracy of the promotion system. I would not promote someone that I did not feel deserved the rank, you know, no matter how long they've been training. And for this individual, obviously, it sucks to be that person that you know at this point, you're picking things up much slower than everybody else, even though you've been training consistently. And that can suck. My advice to that person would, would be, look, don't think of it in terms of, improving your skill set in jujitsu is the only thing that matters because it's most definitely not. I think this question is kind of framed in the sense that this guy getting his purple belt and improving his skill is like the most important reason why he's training jujitsu. And it's definitely what he needs to strive for. And if you're struggling with building the skill sets that you need in order to get promoted, continue to struggle because you're going to struggle no matter how skilled or talented you are or lack thereof, you're going to struggle when it comes to improving. So you need to just continue doing that. But I'm sure that's not the only reason this guy's training jujitsu, right? This guy's been a blue belt for, it sounds like six years, like a really long time. So it sounds like he's got a deeper motivation to train jujitsu than solely on pursuing the next rank. It seems to be something, I mean, if you've been doing anything for eight years, obviously you enjoy it. Obviously he likes coming to class and uh, he's stuck around for this long. He has some enjoyment out of it. He definitely has picked up some skill, obviously at a much slower pace than everybody else, but he's picked up some skill. I'm sure he's made a lot of friends. I'm sure he's in a positive environment where people are encouraging him to get better. So those are all good things. But when it comes to promotions, and I do this even with my kids, I'm even very strict with my kids with the way that I promote them. If you make a single promotion that someone does not deserve, it undermines the meritocratic system for everybody else, and it devalues the rank for everybody else. So it's not fair to everyone else in that school for this person to be promoted to Purple Belt if they don't actually have the skill set that a Purple Belt should have. So for that reason, I would err on the side of meritocracy, but I'm sure this guy loves jujitsu. And, you know, I wish him the best. I hope he continues training because there's a lot of positive benefits to it outside of just getting to the next rank. I didn't even talk about, you know, the health reasons you would want to train Mm jujitsu, how it's so good for your heart and your cardiovascular development and uh, your muscular endurance and things like that. And as you get older, just later in life, just, uh, you know, being more mobile and more active, like Mm -hmm. there's so many other reasons to 
continue to train jujitsu than just the rank, but we have to preserve meritocracy at all costs because, you know, it starts with one little promotion that someone didn't deserve. And then you start making time-based promotions a more common thing for everybody. Or, you know, you start promoting people because you're afraid if they don't get promoted that they'll leave. And it slowly just develops into a more of a McDojo culture, which is obviously something we want to avoid. So, If he does have some sort of disability, which would preclude him from ever being able to roll like a black belt, I would say the other path to black belt is to be being able to instruct like a black belt. And that is something that still is going to take at least a decade for people to really be able to probably more actually, because if you can't prove your skill in terms of how you roll with people, then you need to prove your skill in terms of being able to get others to the skill of black belt in terms of their rolling ability. So it's probably going to take even longer than 10 years. But for the people that have disabilities, for the people that can't roll the way that they want their body to roll. And so therefore, they'll never be able to take on people with an equivalent amount of knowledge because their disability is preventing them from doing so. For those people, I think there's still a path to black belt, but you have to prove yourself as an instructor. You have to prove that you're a black belt level instructor and get promoted along that path, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, when someone else actually commenter said this guy could possibly have a learning disability, yeah. my response was upon which I would expect the coach to make adjustments to cater to his learning style. Right. Is that a real expectation? It depends what kind of what spectrum of the learning disability we're talking about here. But I wanted to get the feedback because it's a very interesting sort of discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's definitely a point. I didn't bring that up, but that's certainly true. If someone is unable to learn in a certain way, but there's maybe other ways that information can be conveyed and retained by them then obviously as an instructor, you should pursue those means, right? You should, pers- you should pursue that direction of instruction. Private um, lessons. You know, yeah, you could do pri- yeah, you could do private lessons. And this person could also invest in their, in their own jujitsu, not just through privates, but by watching instructionals, really trying to memorize the movements of the things that they're kind of missing. So yeah, ultimately the instructor has a role here they could adjust the way that they teach things for this person in particular. And I don't know whether this person is going to continue, but I actually have a student with a, with a learning disability. He was in a serious accident and he has difficulty with short and long-term memory. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's the craziest thing because now he's been training for a few months, you know, on and off, but a few months, but it's like, he can't articulate what his body is doing, but I can see that he's getting the muscle memory ingrained and he's making smarter decisions, but he, he doesn't understand what he's doing. He, you know, it's pretty crazy. Like he can't articulate anything that he does, but it's like, Oh, he hit an elbow escape. And he has no idea that what he did was like, you know, a good thing or that he, or that he learned it and retained it. So it's possible. And obviously this person has been learning a little bit slower than everybody else, but he's making consistent improvement. So I like to see that. And obviously though, every learning disability is different. And if that is what this guy has, he may have something that precludes him from being able to learn in any teaching method, you know, and it's like, well, what do you do with that? Again, you can't really undermine the system for the sake of one person because that's not fair to everybody else. But I think this person will continue to train jujitsu because it sounds like they enjoy it. And I think they should. It sounds like you're pretty passionate about the belt system here. So let's discuss that Mm -hmm. a bit. I want to hear your expectations in terms of what do you expect from your students at each belt color? I mean, the belt system to me seems a bit nebulous and it's more conceptual. And that's not to say I want my next color belt. I want that stripe because I'm human (laughs) and I love incentives and I love the, the 
drip, drip, drip of feeling good. Yeah. So I, th- I definitely think the belt system has its uses. And again, I came from a wrestling tradition. There's no belts in wrestling. You know, it's either you're better than this person or you're not. Right. So I love that about wrestling, by the way. I think wrestling for that reason is great at building mental toughness and building the intrinsic desire to do well for the sake of doing well and not for the sake of a trinket or a recognition from somebody that you did well. For instance, when I have kids, they're definitely wrestling. I love jujitsu. I prefer training jujitsu over wrestling, but they need that. I think wrestling is a very beneficial activity for kids. Now, with coming from that background, what do I think of the belt system? Again, I think it has its uses because it's uses for maintaining meritocracy as it happens. Because you can tell when you roll with someone, you can tell the difference between a blue and a purple belt. Even if you're a white belt, usually you can tell the difference between a blue belt and a purple belt. You may not be able to tell the difference between a purple belt and a black belt, but you can certainly tell the difference between a blue and purple. And it forces other schools to keep each other accountable in terms of what rank people are and what the overall skill set that's being produced is. And at the wider blue belt, it doesn't matter because everyone has a different definition of a blue belt. For some people, it's like, well, you can beat a stronger, bigger, untrained opponent, right? Which is actually a pretty low bar for a blue belt. I have a slightly higher bar. My bar for a blue belt is you can beat a larger, stronger, untrained opponent starting from a bad position. You have the ability to escape and get back to a neutral position and win. So, you know, I wouldn't promote someone to blue belt that had no idea how to escape side control, for instance, but maybe they're good in other positions. So I like a little bit more completeness before I promote people to blue. And so it tends to take maybe a little bit longer, but it also makes it so that you don't get your blue belt in six to eight months and then you're waiting three years to get your purple because oftentimes that happens. The road from blue to purple, I think, is the hardest road. I think getting from blue to purple means you'll eventually be a black belt if the purple belt is truly a purple belt. Because at that point, again, I, in my opinion, a purple belt means you have no holes defensively, no obvious holes defensively. You have a couple of really strong offensive sequences that you're capable of funneling people to and you can submit people of higher rank in, or at the very least, put me in serious danger, right? If you're a purple belt under me, you should be able to put me in serious danger. Maybe you can't finish me, you know, very often, but you can put me in serious danger. And then brown belt is just that at a higher level. You know, at that point, your understanding of jujitsu is deeper. You've thrown away some things that are lower percentage in favor of simpler things that are higher percentage. So you have a much more well-rounded offensive game and you have a better ability to teach and structure training program, right? So I would trust the purple belt to run a beginner's class and run a beginner's curriculum with my guidance. I would trust a brown belt to open a school and be able to instruct everyone from beginner to an advanced practitioner. And I'm not a black belt, so I can't really speak too much on what a black belt is, although my instructor has hinted I might be getting it this year. So we'll see. A black belt would be someone who can not only run an effective program, but teach others how to run an effective program and teach others how to be good teachers themselves, right? Obviously have a higher degree of competence when it comes to actual application of rolling ability. So more developed offense than a brown belt, you know, and a better ability to articulate what they're doing than a brown belt, more trickery, Mm -hmm. a greater ability to force mistakes to happen. Basically just you're going at a higher level here. And it helps that we have multiple systems and multiple schools and multiple affiliations out there in the jujitsu world because everybody can kind of keep each other accountable. If your brown belts are getting wrecked by this school's blue belts, Maybe that's something you should think about in terms of how you're giving out promotions or how you're teaching certain material, because they may be brown belts in 80% of jujitsu, but maybe they're lacking that 20%. And a lot of these leg locks, by the way, a lot of this happens with leg locks. 
And, you know, you get a blue belt that's competent in a couple leg lock positions and they can submit you. So I think it's beneficial because if you're a purple belt getting promoted in one school and you cross train and you go to another school and you're having trouble with their white belts and their blue belts, really consider the level of instruction you're getting and maybe how you're being promoted. Maybe it's not the best thing. So it has its uses for that reason, I would say. How do you see the future of jujitsu going? Well, I like to be optimistic and I want jujitsu to be an American staple. I want it to be as big as basketball. And that seems like a very grandiose thing to say, but consider how much progress we've made in the last 30 years. You know, you go back to the 90s, a purple belt in the United States was a rarity. They almost didn't exist. It was like a unicorn. And now they're everywhere. There's purple belts everywhere. Every city now has a black belt. Almost every city in the United States is a black belt. They don't all have schools, but they reside there. And that level of skill is there. And it's continuing to expand. Five years ago, the idea that grapplers would be getting paid thousands of dollars, you know, to compete at these invitationals would have been preposterous. There wasn't a market for it, but it continues to expand. And I think it's because jujitsu has a lot of positive things to offer our culture. One, it's a very meritocratic system. And, you know, one defining characteristic of American culture, I believe, has been meritocracy. That's always something that we've been pursuing. And it's something that in a lot of structures and institutions in this country, we need to go back to. And jujitsu provides that level of meritocratic accountability for people to where, yeah, if you suck, you're not getting a purple belt. You know, I don't care how long you've been training. That should be the message. And we need to maintain that message in the culture of jujitsu so that we can expand that message to the overall American culture. Because that type of system, that type of meritocratic system, I believe produces camaraderie. It produces positive competition and it produces cooperation for the sake of getting to that next level. These are all positive things that we need in every single institution and field. So it's a means of popularizing that idea, which I think is very valuable. And as more people train jujitsu and more people see the value to it, it's going to continue. The biggest thing we can do to expand jujitsu is to get as many kids as possible into it. So I mean, that seems to be where the explosion, I think, is going to happen, where you see a possibility of it becoming like an NBA way down the road is you're seeing these kids starting now at three in in America and in Europe, whatever. They're of age now. They're like the Colabates and the Rotolos or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we're at just the beginning of that. We are indeed. I think it's going to accelerate over the next five years. And over the next 10 years, it's going to be crazy. I think jujitsu will be bigger than wrestling is right now. And I'm excited for that. I think it needs to continue because think about it this way. I'm an instructor at my school in Sarasota right now. In 10 years, I will have produced several other instructors that are highly competent. And by the way, every other jujitsu school owner will do the same thing. So that's the kind of multiplication that will happen. And we're going to have more kids that were in it from a young age. And they're learning these intrinsic lessons of the importance of hard work, the ability to suffer through failure in order to achieve success. These are essential things that you want your kids to learn. Because ultimately, what you're trying to do, if you're a parent, is you're trying to prepare your child for the real world, which means you want them to be a stronger, better version of you, both physically and mentally. As a parent, that should be your goal. You want your kids to be better than you. Not for the sake of your own ego or for the sake of your own pride, but because you love them and you want them to be successful. And jujitsu is a great way to impart many of the lessons that they will need in order for that to happen. So the more people see that and the more parents see the value of their kids doing jujitsu, the more it's going to continue to expand. And as these kids that start training jujitsu get older and they start opening up schools and they start opening up programs for other kids, 
it's going to just continue to grow until it becomes a staple of American culture. And I think that's where we're ultimately going to head. These things don't happen overnight. I think this is a generational change, but we need to do our best to continue to accelerate it and to guide it in a positive direction. Brother, can you share some of your jujitsu heroes and why? One of them is Ryan Hall. I quote him often in terms of what he said. And I think he's going to think it's funny that I say that because he wrote an essay about people idolizing him who have never met him and how that's silly, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm going to contradict him a little bit here and say, well, Ryan, the fact that you wrote that says a lot about you. You have some similar ideas to how I think about jujitsu now, and you've you've influenced the way that I think about it. And I have a video on this. It's called Avoiding Authoritarian Martial Arts Schools. And one of the things I say is, look, just because your instructor is skilled at strangling another human being does not mean they are an expert at life, does not mean that they are someone that can give you advice outside of jujitsu. I know highly skilled black belts that have more technical skill and a greater competitive ability than I do, whose personal lives are just a complete disaster. And I would never take advice from them. So we want to avoid this kind of deference to authority that sometimes the martial arts instructor can draw upon as a means of like controlling people or even in a more benign sense of thinking that the weight of his words and what he says outside of the context of jujitsu has more value because that's just simply not true. And even when I talk about jujitsu, I try my best not to use the fact that I've been training for so long as a means of winning an argument or a discussion, because ultimately it should come down to the facts of the situation and what you're discussing. My experience is irrelevant. My argument is what's relevant. Obviously your experience informs your argument, which makes it more likely to be correct, but relying upon your experience itself is an appeal to authority and it's a logical fallacy. And that's something that Ryan Hall in his essay, I think he pointed that out brilliantly. And I also have a lot of respect for a guy who goes out and decides to get punched in the face because he sees that as a more complex problem than jujitsu and and he wants to see how he's going to do with it. It's certainly not something that I'm willing to do. I'm not willing to risk brain damage, you know, in order in order to go do that. So obviously I have a lot of respect for him there. And I think he's been an overall positive influence on the culture, you know, with those things that he's said. So I admire Ryan Hall. Uh, other people that I admire, Gary Tonin and Gordon Ryan, because yeah, Gordon talks a lot of crap and he said some things that I wish he hadn't said, but ultimately not a single other person except maybe Joe Rogan has done more to grow jujitsu than he has in terms of the ability of competitors to get paid in terms of the eyes that people are, are having on these events and the ability of these events to make money, because frankly, that's how it grows, right? Mm-hmm. The more that promotions are able to make money, the more it grows. And so a lot of the things he says, you know, I think are excessive, but at the end of the day, he's done more to grow the sport, you know, and, you know, he's in some cases been the bad guy that I think jujitsu kind of needed. Gary Tonin, I met personally uh, several years ago seemed like a very nice guy, gave me some advice because I asked him, you know, what do I need to do to, you know, become successful as a competitor? He's like, look, just keep grinding. Just like come train every day, like never find an excuse in your outside life to take away from what you're trying to do and really commit yourself to it. So I appreciate that advice. So I have a great admiration for those guys. And, you know, there's, there's many other competitors that are a lot better than me and uh, have taught me a lot of great things. You know, some of them aren't really well known. Like I'll give one example, you know, Chase Hanna, he trained I think in Georgia, I'm not sure what state he's in, but he's a 10th planet guy. And uh, he posted an Instagram video like several years ago about the way that he does his arm and guillotines. And I have used that technique for the past like four or five years since he posted it. I'm super grateful that he 
that he shared it. You know, I think that's really cool. And there's like tons of other people that I've taken stuff from too, you know, too many to name, many of them not affiliated with me in any way, you know, but I'm really grateful for the people that share their knowledge and are just a positive impact on the sport. You mentioned Danaher several times. Yeah, Danaher, I admire, I admire greatly. I wanted to stick to his students, you know, um, because, you know, when you said that, I mainly yeah. thought of competitors, but obviously yeah. Danaher has been a great influence on jiu-jitsu. His ability to break things down, not only in a mechanical sense, but in a strategic sense, I think is fantastic. I read a ton of his uh, essay posts that he, that he shares on his social <laughs> yeah. media, you know, and yeah. uh, I think they're great. It's definitely informed a lot of the way that I think about concepts and strategy in jiu-jitsu. So, but I, I've definitely learned a lot from him. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to, you know, expand into, you know, these video platforms and share my knowledge because through his posts, through his videos, I've learned a ton from him and he doesn't even know who I am. So I would like to do the same as an instructor and try to reach more people. So the detail on the Armin guillotine from the 10th planet individual that you mentioned, can you yeah, share that Chase with Hannah. us in an yeah, audio format? I will try my best. Okay. okay. So Basically, the pretzel grip guillotine is something that I like for an arm out guillotine where you just have the head. I believe it's better than the marcellotine because the marcellotine, you have to go in front of the fist and then elevate your elbow over. Mm -hmm. So you have to go in between your opponent's shoulder and your hand, and that can be sometimes difficult to do. And you also have less range of motion in getting the elbow over the shoulder than you do with the pretzel grip guillotine. So the pretzel grip guillotine, my elbow's up and I'm grabbing in front, and then I'm really throwing my elbow over the top, you can get it nice and deep. It's a very strong, very hard grip to hand fight because obviously mm -hmm. it's a gable grip. Now, the arming guillotine is like a reverse that Chase Hanna showed a long time ago. It's like a reverse pretzel grip guillotine. So when you have the arm in, instead of having the hand facing you, you have the hand facing outward towards your opponent. Your other arm, the non-choking arm that's going over your opponent's arm is going to go over the arm and it's going to go underneath. And then you're going to gable grip mm. the other hand, the one that's facing outward away from you. And now what you're going to do is you're going to tuck your elbows in and in the gap between your opponent's neck and shoulder, you're going to suck that gable grip into it, just like inverting the elbows into your chest and pulling the grip up just like that. It produces a really, really tight guillotine, which is almost impossible to hand fight effectively wow. once it's locked in. Oh, interesting. Um, huh. Yeah, so I, I really like that. It is difficult sometimes in transitions to lock it. There's arming guillotines that I also do because they're faster. Right. It's faster and easier to lock it. So like if I'm getting surprised with a double leg and I don't have time to invert my grip, I'm going to use a different arm and choke. But if I have time to set it up, I'm going to use Chase Hannah's and it is brutal. It is super, super tight. Robot dolphin. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? IG yeah. handle. It's, uh, I believe there's some sort of instructional or something site that you have. Can you describe a uh, robot dolphin grappling? I do have but, that as well. Give us the bio on robot dolphin. Sure, sure. It's a funny nickname, but basically it goes back to the original MMA school that I trained at, which was called Train Fight Win. And uh, the ladies that trained there, they thought I was just adorable, a 20-year-old idiot that didn't know anything. So their nickname for me was Sweet Dolphin Baby, because like, I think I was shooting like a low single leg on somebody and someone like made a comment, like I looked like a dolphin just jumping out of water, like trying to snatch a fish or something, you know? And I think that's how it caught on. When I started training under my current instructor, Sonny, who I've been with for the last six years, but I was far more awkward back then. So he called me a robot. That was his name for me. And those names eventually became combined. And so I'm now the robot dolphin. <laughs> so, so Werther, where can we get more information about you, whatever you're doing? 
Sure, absolutely. So the videos that I produce, they're going up on YouTube and they're also on Rumble. I haven't migrated all the videos onto Rumble yet, but they're going to be on there. I'm eventually going to get on Odyssey too. And the reason for that is, you know, if you've been following what's been happening with YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all these mainstream social media platforms, they've become extremely censorship heavy. And will they care about a jujitsu cultural account? Maybe not, but I think it's better to have a backup plan the way that things have been heading. I'm very anti-censorship as well. So I, I want to grow these other platforms that are more censorship resistant, like Rumble, or even better, like Odyssey. And that's also why I'm on Gab. Gab is a truly free speech social media. I'll just be blatant with some of the alternatives that have come out, you know, so, you know, Twitter is the main platform that I think everybody hates, you know, because of their inconsistency with censorship and their obvious bias that is in definite violation of their section 230 protections. They're not doing good faith moderation. I would say the same of Instagram and Facebook. I, I post uh, a lot to Gab. That's where you guys can find me. And I'm trying to expand my video content onto more censorship resistant platforms like Rumble and Odyssey as well, though I am on YouTube and you guys can find me there. If you want uh, where I post most of my stuff, though, I post everything that I produce and memes and stuff on Gab. And that's where you guys can find me. I hope your listeners will consider going to Gab. There's a few jujitsu groups, but we'd like to grow them and we'd like to get more people on there. Thank you, everyone. And give us the whole five stars on iTunes. I'm Adolfo Front on your host. You've been listening to Forever White Belt, and we will see you guys next time. Thanks so much, Werther. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it.